So Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my dear. Do not leave to gather grain in another field. You need not go beyond the limits of the field. You may go along beside my female workers. So he's employed female workers as well. He's taking care of everybody. She's not the only one. Take note of the field where the men are harvesting and follow behind with the female workers. I will tell the men to leave you alone. And when you are thirsty, you may go to the water jars and drink some of the water the servants draw. Now, this is powerful. Boaz is only required to leave some grain in the corners of his field. But now he's saying, I will make you equal to one of my workers. You have access to the free vending machine, the free food court, the, the, the free everything. All these special free things that companies give out or whatever privileges or whatever. The, the, the training room down in the basement. Whatever. The, the coupons that we pass out to employees only. I'm giving you access to all that. You are not an employee. But I'm going to treat you as if you are one. And I am going to make sure that none of the men harm you. Now, that's a powerful statement because Boaz realizes that they're in the time period of the judges. And even though there's a powerful current pushing the community towards godliness, that doesn't mean that everybody always acts godly. And so he says, I will make sure that I put a fence of protection around you where women are not valued or taken care of in the time period of the judges. And he's, he could just say, well, okay, let the poor come in. They're on their own. I'll just leave and go home. But he's, and here's the thing. He's going over and beyond what the law requires. Because Boaz gets that the law is not about legal obedience to the letter. Boaz gets that the law is about loving God and loving others. And the law was not really a law saying you must do this exactly. The law was, you want to know what love looks like? Here's an example. Now use that brain that God gave you and that imagination that he gave you and the heart that is connected to God and figure out how to make that more active. And see, oftentimes we come to the law and we think, wow, there's 613 very specific things of what you must and cannot do. And then you think, okay, as long as I check, 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 this is how legalism works, then I'm good, 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 good. What they missed was that the law was 613 examples of here's a practical example of what love looks like. I mean, if I give an example, like that would be like me stand up here and talking about the guy who did the gleanings and workshops, and you're like, okay, then what he's saying now is that that's all I have to do. But that's how a lot of people read the law. They just think, do, 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 do. But that wasn't the point of the law. The point of the law was saying, here's examples of what love looks like. God gave you an incredible brain, a creative mm -hmm. imagination, an outside-of-the-box way of thinking. He gave you a spirit that you can connect and pray to God and, and seek his following. Now join God with your creativity and your imagination and your thinking and figure out what does it look like for you to love in your culture. In your circles. And Boaz gets that. And see, here's the thing. You almost realize that Boaz doesn't need a law to govern him. Because nowhere did the law say, oh, by the way, you also have to treat them as an employee. Oh, by the way, you also have to... He just knew that was what the law was saying. 
because he could read the spirit of it all. And so he goes over and beyond the requirements of the law, and it's going to cost him financially. But it's because he believes that God will take care of him, despite the cost of the <coughs> sacrifice, because this is chesed. Now you're seeing Boaz economically being threatened by going over and beyond the law, taking care of people. If you want to know how shocking this act really is, how countercultural it is, then you look at Ruth's response. And Ruth knelt down before him. This is the idea of falling on her knees, completely blown away. Why are you so kind and so attentive to me, even though I'm a foreigner? People don't treat foreigners like this. People treat, barely treat their own kinsmen like this. Boaz replied to her, I have been given a full report of all that you have done for your mother-in-law, following the death of your husband. How you left your father and your mother, as well as your homeland, and came to live among the people you did not know previously. May Yahweh reward your efforts. May your acts of kindness be repaid fully. By Yahweh God Israel, by the Yahweh God of Israel, from whom you have sought protection. So he says, I have been blown away by your act of chesed to your mother-in-law. How you sacrificed everything to take care of her. Now this is very important for you to understand. You cannot understand chapter 3 correctly if you don't understand that when Boaz talks here, this is Ruth's first act of Hesed. Because later in chapter 3, a lot of people misunderstand what's happening in chapter 3. And the key to understanding what's going on is when Boaz says, this act of Hesed is greater than the first. And if you don't know what the first act of Hesed from Ruth is, then you don't get what he's talking about in chapter 3. And so for right now, I'm like, some of you are like, what are you talking about in chapter 3? Right now, all you need to know is if you don't remember or you didn't catch or whatever, you just need to know right now, pounded into your head, that Ruth's first great act of chesed is that she sacrificed everything for her mother-in-law to take care of her. And that th that's according to Boaz's words. And that's important for you to understand, to correctly understand what's happening in chapter 3. Because when we get to three, it kind of gets a little confusing. And four gets really confusing if you're not tracking with this chesed. And a lot of people teach chapter three and four wrong because for them this is a book about romance and lust. And if you and listen, you go to a lot of colleges and universities, they teach the book of Ruth. Atheistic literary professors teach the book of Ruth. Why? Because it's an amazing piece of literature. Just like in our school, we teach like Macbeth and Homer and the Iliad, not because we actually believe the gods are real, but because they're incredible pieces of work of literary. And they do the same thing with the Bible. But when they teach it, it's about lust and sex because they miss chesed because they don't get what chesed is. Chesed does not thrive among PhD professors. When they come to books like this, they miss that part. And when they teach in the classrooms, I know because my students come back and tell me what is being taught in their literary classes. And it's about sex and lust. He knows his act of chesed, but he doesn't stop there. 
He says, may Yahweh reward your efforts. May Yahweh repay you. Because God blesses those who are a blessing to other people. God blesses those who are a blessing to another people. And God uses people to be a blessing to other people. And that's very important. This book is communicating both those ideas. That if you bless other people, God will bless you. And God is blessing you so that you can become a blessing to other people. And if you take what you have and use it to bless other people, God will bring people into your life that will bless you in return. And then you're to take that. And that's what it means to be a cup overflowing into other people's lives. Even though you may not feel your cup is overflowing right now, if you let it overflow, pour it out, despite being half empty, God will begin to fill it. And your cup is probably a little bit fuller than what you probably feel like it is, too. Because we tend to focus on the negatives. He says, may Yahweh replay you, which his theology is solid. Finally, somebody is using Yahweh in the right way after the judges. And then he goes on and says, whom you have sought under the wings of Yahweh. Certain Bibles may say protection because that's what it metaphorically means. But it's the wings of Yahweh, and that's powerful. Sometimes I wish these metaphors wouldn't be translated. That's what the metaphor means, but it's not as graphic. We use metaphors for a reason. They're visually powerful and emotionally visual. What he's saying is the wing of protections. Because this is the idea where Christ is going to come along and say, Oh, Israel, how I long to gather you together in my arms like a mother bird gathers her chicks. That's the idea. A mother bird who hunkers down over her young, her fragile, defenseless birds in the midst of a suffering, ruthless nature and surrounds them with her wings and is willing to put her own body at risk for the sake of her young. And Boaz says, that's what you've done. You haven't come under my amazing economic stability and my amazing community that I've created here. He gets that this is God's community. He says, you have come under the wings of God's protections. And right now, God just happens, I just happen to be his wings. This is what God means when he says, I'll be a father to the fatherless. And you're like, how is God a father to the fatherless? He's not even, I can barely sometimes communicate with him and talk to him because he feels so invisible. It means that when the church acts like the church, then Christ indwells you and, and you become the flesh of Christ. Then you become the father to the fatherless. But it is Christ really doing it because you have allowed yourself to be used by him and he lives in you and he, you become the father, but it's really him. And that's what Boaz gets. Is you come under the wings of God's protection, but I happen to be the physical manifestation of those wings now. Not because I'm that great, but because God is using me. Their theology is powerful in the time period of the judges. Like, my goodness, Boaz should have been a teacher of potential judges. <laughs> You're going to be a judge, you have to go to Boaz first. That's requirement number one. She said, you really are being kind to me, sir, for you have reassured and encouraged me, your servant, even though I am not one of your servants. You have no obligation to me. Yet I, be, I feel incredibly encouraged because in this culture, she's definitely got to feel rejected. And I feel incredibly reassured 
because in this culture, she's got to feel very unsafe. And yet Boaz is making her feel both of those. Now, here's the thing. There are only three desires that you ever feel. You only have three desires in your entire life. And everything that you do is fulfilling those. And that's a sense of love and acceptance, a sense of safety and security, and a sense of meaning and purpose. And most of the time, most of our decisions are going towards the first, the love and acceptance. She says she has a purpose now because she is made to feel like a worker in the field gleaning. She has a sense of love and acceptance because she feels encouraged. And she has a feeling of safety because she feels reassured and protected under the wings of God. He's meeting her needs. And nothing about romance or, hey, you want to go on a date. In fact, later in chapter 3, you almost get the sense that Boaz has never even occurred to him. Because he says it's wow, you could have gone after any of the young men, but you've come after me, an older man. Which means he's probably thinking, "There's, I'm older. She's like a daughter. Later during the mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and have some food. Dip your bread into the vinegar. So she sat down beside the harvester. She's just brought into the company meal. The company meal that the company like spends a lot of money to provide for the people, and we all know how companies work, most of the time they're spending a lot of money to provide you a meal because they're trying to inspire company loyalty so they can make more money off of you. And yet he's not making money off of her. Now I'm not saying if you're a company owner you shouldn't do that kind of stuff. I'm saying if you're a Christian company owner you do it for different reasons. So he feeds her. Does the law require that? No. Then he handed her some of the roasted grain. She ate until she was full, served Save the rest. She got an abundance. More than what she can eat. She got to go back to go bag. When she got up to gather grain, Boaz told his male servants, let her gather grain even among the bundles. So she can even gather grain among grain that is even that's hasn't even been harvested. Grain that's already been harvested, you've worked for it and you've bundled it up. Allow her to pull from it. Make sure that you pull out the ears of grain for her and drop them so that she can gather them up. If you're so good at your job that you're like the guy who doesn't drop anything, then I'm telling you to intentionally drop it. Now notice he's telling the men privately. Because when people are in need and they feel like people are giving them charity and it's so obvious, it it makes them feel devalued. If you make your charity obvious, you can actually not make them feel loved and accepted, but you actually make them feel pitied and then they feel humiliated, and you've lost that connection. What he's doing here is he's making sure that it's not obvious. He's making sure that she doesn't get humiliated or felt pitied. Just do it on the down low. So she gathered grain in the field until evening, and when she threshed what she had gathered, and came to him. She gathered, and it came to him about 30 pounds of barley. He allows her to take 30 pounds of barley. But here's the thing. That's a half of a month's wages. Boaz is so generous to her. And like one day that she got a half month of wages. He's going over and beyond the law. The law never requires any of this stuff. So she carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much grain she had gathered. Then Ruth gave her the roasted grain and she saved that she saved for mealtime. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you gather the grain today? 
Where did you work? May the one who took notice of you be rewarded. So Ruth told her mother-in-law whom she had worked, and she said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be rewarded by Yahweh because he has shown loyalty, loving kindness, chesed, to the living on behalf of the dead. Elimelech just came back into it. Now what does it mean like, He has blessed my dead husband by taking care of you. You're like, wow, that's a really strange comment. Because what is a husband's greatest desire? To take care of his family. To provide for To make that they're safe and secure. If a husband doesn't have that desire, he's broken. He's dysfunctional. That's woven into his DNA. Will he always do it perfectly? No. Will he sometimes be selfish? Yes, because we're all human. But it doesn't change the fact that that is not his desire, and he will work hard to do that. And a husband who knows he's about ready to die, the fear of what will happen to his family when he's gone is incredibly great. She says that he has shown love to the dead. Because remember, in Israelite thinking, no one's really truly dead. They go on. Abraham, who knew that he would not receive the promises of the land in this lifetime, keep pursuing God because he knew that it would yet come in another day. They knew that life went on. And descendants are incredibly important to them. She acknowledges that this is showing love. Boaz has become like a husband to her. He's doing what Elimelech would have normally done and desired for them. And Elimelech doesn't have to be dead in the grave, wondering and fearing what is happening to his family because somebody has stepped up and become the new Elimelech and taking care of him. Because this story is really about Elimelech. Or Naomi. And Naomi said to her, This man is a close relative of ours. He is our guardian or kinsman redeemer. And Ruth the Moabite replied, "Even He even told me, You may go along beside my servants until they have finished gathering all the harvest. Naomi then said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, It is good, my daughter, that you should go out and work with this female servants. That, may, that way you may not be harmed which could happen in another field. She knows the reality of the world they live in. So Ruth worked beside Boaz, female servants, gathering grain until the end of the barley harvest, as well as the wheat harvest. And after that, she stayed home with her mother-in-law. Now remember, she needs to bring back as much grain as she can because this is the grain for the entire year. This is not the grain for the week, like our wages (coughs) or the month. This is the grain for the year. So they're stockpiling. But notice how Naomi says, don't go to any other field. See, normally as a poor person, you hit every single field because nobody is providing enough grain to provide for all the poor. You scavenge all the neighborhoods. But Boaz is going so over and beyond the law that she doesn't need to scavenge the neighborhoods. She can spend every single day in this field and still be provided for. And now, all of a sudden, there's hope. The immediate practical needs have been provided for. The immediate depression and darkness and hopelessness has been resolved. The light is shining very bright. There's incredible blessings. There's safety and security. But there's still a long-term need that has not been met. And that Elimelech has no line. Elimelech has no line. And so immediate, short-term, practical are then dealt with. 
but long term has not. And that's where the next two chapters come in. Where she lived. 